Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to another episode of Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comic podcast. We're looking again at G.I. Joe disavowed era. And today's deep dive will be into issue 5 from 2002, as well as the Battle Files tie-ins. Stick around for my quiz, Devil's True or Devil's Poo. We'll have some toy talk, some G.I. Joe merchandise, and the segment that everyone is talking about, I imagine, Innuendo. And without any further ado, time to introduce the co-hosts. First up, it's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, everyone. Hi, Mark. Hi, good to have you here. And rounding out our disavowed crew, it's G.I.J. Jay Cordray. Hi, Joe fans. Good to have you back, Jay. Good to be back. And uh, has any excitement been happening to you guys uh, this this week? Oh, goodness. Well, as I told you guys, <laughs> I bought a new computer, so I've been uh, mm. working on updating that and, and making sure everything's good to go for the show. None of that is as exciting as uh, the news that we're getting Snake Eyes versus Batman. I think we're all excited about that. Oh, yeah. Or not. Uh, <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, you know, we're still uh, keeping our ears out for word of what the Amazon Lady J show is going to be. Um, I should be getting Snake Supreme Cobra Commander today sometime. And mm. uh, Last Laugh Hardcover, which is the devil, or not the devils, do the IDW Chuckles, Chuckles storyline. Cobra thing. Mm. And uh, yeah, another action figure guide. So today's a big Joe day for me. Uh, but uh, we should probably we should probably spend a minute talking about the Batman Fortnite announcement. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's it. It's not specifically Batman Snake Eyes, is it? It's Batman Fortnite. Yeah, it's a Fortnite comic, isn't it? So which, uh, I we know don't nothing about sure. Fortnite. So I'm I'm told, and all of our listeners who are gamers can be aghast at how out of touch I am, that Fortnite started as a building game, and then it became, uh, I guess, a, a fighting game or an action game, and you can design your own character, that's the appeal, and uh, when Hasbro announced that Snake Eyes was a downloadable character, um, I can't even remember if it was a couple weeks or a couple months back, uh, it's not the character; it's the skin. So you can yeah. you can look like Snake Eyes and sort of play as Snake Eyes, but you don't meet Snake Eyes, and there's no Snake Eyes story. It's the it's the sort of the big thing of Fortnite is all about sort of the skins, 
and the dances emotes and i guess uh that that you can download and then sort of have your character look different and, and sort of have these I guess dances and, and things and yeah the the Fortnite aficionados are, are happy to pay fairly substantial amounts of money to have a skin so that your character can look different or do a slightly different dance um and so so yeah the Fortnite team is constantly releasing new characters that uh can be de- uh, downloaded uh, and uh, and yeah be sort of plugged into into the game as as their big revenue stream so i'm this... curious what the 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 what the crossover will be will that actually be you know will that be the snake eyes character do you think or or will it just be somebody in a snake eyes costume that's a good point um we could also take a step back and put this in context so i think Two months ago, Marvel Comics announced a series of variant covers for the regular Marvel Comics superhero line where uh, some Fortnite characters would be appearing on the cover, you know, of Iron Man or Avengers along with Marvel characters. I saw that and I thought, oh, I wonder if this is a prelude to Marvel publishing an actual story crossover, like a discrete miniseries. And then to my surprise... um, just a few weeks or maybe it was a month or two ago, DC Comics announced a Batman Fortnite crossover um, co-written by uh, Christos Gage, who co-wrote Cobra for IDW. Um, and I think his co-writer is uh, the one of the developers of the Fortnite game. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the big, and, one of the big Fortnite. Um, yeah, big uh, and I actually wasn't following the news any further. I thought it was a one shot. And it and and then to my surprise, just this past week, as a comics retailer, as someone who owns a store, I get two or three emails every week from DC uh, with news. What that means nowadays is just announcements of upcoming variant covers or release date changes. And the news was something, something about issues two and three of Batman Fortnite. And I thought, Oh, okay. I guess it's a mini series. I guess it's you know six mm. issues. And oh, by the way, Snake Eyes is in issue three, and the solicit for issue three, the actual summary that's in all the official catalogs and websites, is Batman versus Snake Eyes. Period. That's it. Like, that's the only thing we're putting in this solicitation. And then 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 there's the the, the regular cover with Batman in the foreground and Snake Eyes sword drawn sort of uh mm. l- falling landing popping up um behind him yeah and i guess at this point we don't know for sure whether you know the extent of that fortnight um, appearance from from snake eyes because yeah this is i guess called batman fortnight uh zero points the, the actual series so it's, it's for, probably first and foremost foremost a, a fortnight centric comic then a Batman one, and this 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 Snake Eyes appearance is uh, part of that. So, is it going to be just a cover <laughs> variant? Is it going to be just a panel, or are we going to actually see a, a full issue with with proper you know story and inter- interaction, like a full comics worth of uh, crossover with with Batman? Jay, how do you feel about the uh, the Jim Lee variant cover? It's good. I mean, it's it's Jim Lee. I love Jim Lee. Um, 
you know, I had to look at uh, some of his Uncanny X-Men stuff. I thought that that was really his best work. If you compare the Jim Lee variant with, like, Uncanny X-Men 277, where you have Wolverine and Gambit fighting, I think that the 277 is a much more dynamic um, image. I would have liked to have seen something like that. Um, probably with this, his intention was to, to try to show more of the, the full body, you know, get more of the costumes in the picture. Whereas the Uncanny 277, they both were kind of in their uh, yellow and blue outfits. Uh, but I think that resulted in a, in a better cover. I'm wondering if, is there any kind of Fortnite story? Like, what if what if Batman's not Batman? What if it's just a Batman skin versus a Snake Eyes skin? Yeah, I'd say the the Batman certainly on the front on the on the Jim Lee one is got a different look to him. So he's got uh, one of his modern redesigns, which has got a kind of off kilter sort of hand drawn bat signal looking like I don't know if that's future state Batman or or what, but um, not not the typical Batman that uh, look that that I'm quite used to. Do you guys like the the Jim Lee variant? Yeah, it's good. I mean. Any any tension that you get to Snake Eyes with a big name artist like Jim Lee and get people <laughs> in, excited about Snake Eyes and, and G.I. Joe is probably a good thing from my perspective. We got Dead Game. <laughs> I'm 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 torn on this because uh similarly, anytime you know, we've never seen Jim Lee draw Snake Eyes in any kind of official capacity. And I don't know if I've even seen, you know, a convention sketch sort of pop up here or there. And you know, I've always wanted G.I. Joe to have to return to the cachet of getting an artist like Jim Lee to do a variant cover, a regular cover, maybe even a whole story. And and yes, you know, I've, I've, I'm on the record about Rob Liefeld getting a whole Snake Eyes miniseries being exciting. This is such a strange convergence. This is so many levels removed mm-hmm. from just an actual G.I. Joe story, like a G.I. Joe comic book that... Um, I don't feel like I'm being punked, but it's just a head scratcher um, because uh, Snake Eyes has the cultural cachet that I feel like IDW and DC by now could have arranged a you know six issue crossover miniseries that's just you know Batman GI Joe or yeah. Batman Snake Eyes, and for this to be um, a sort of sideways guest appearance in someone else's book. But it makes sense because Snake Eyes is this downloadable skin in this game. And we forgot to mention, uh, this, at the same time that the, the downloadable skin was announced, Hasbro announced a special uh, six-inch Snake Eyes Fortnite crossover action figure that you could buy. And I, I think it's only mm. a Hasbro exclusive. Yeah, so it's essentially it's the G.I. Joe classified Snake Eyes that was previously re-released, but with some fine-tuning to uh, to make it uh, match the Fortnite version of the character. It's got some different paint apps and um, yeah. some... There's actually a couple really nice guns that come with that figure, but then you have, like, a launchable plunger or something, which, for me, <laughs> that was, like, the, com- the, the the thing that just immediately took me out of it. I'm like, no, I draw the line at uh, Joe's with plungers. No, yeah, I mean, no you don't janitor have to use... viper, sorry. <laughs> so, you don't uh, have and, to and, use and... the plunger. This toy comes in a fancy box. Um, so the, the comparison for me is uh, the new Avengers Transformers four-issue miniseries that um, Marvel and IDW published uh, I remember that. like 10 years ago. And 
Um, I didn't really like it. Uh, it. There's not, you know, on a certain scale, like, I don't know what Luke Cage and, uh, like, Spider-Woman are going to do when, like, Megatron is walking in front of them. And, yes, like, a good writer can 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 make this work and can pull off sort of the power sets, the, the, the difference in scale. But um, I'm not sure... It's like the Batman Ninja Turtles crossovers. They're a lot of fun. Um, I don't know what they get you besides sort of scratching a fan itch. It's like, oh, well, now we yeah. can have a scene where Batman and Donatello talk because they're both gadget people. Now we can have a scene where Batman and uh, Leonardo talk because Leonardo has swords and he's the leader and Batman is a leader. And But Batman's also got an attitude. So he can have a moment with, with Raphael or, you know, we can have... Uh, uh, the Joker say something crazy to Shredder. Like, it's, uh, I don't know how satisfying a story like this is because you can't really change anything permanently. So you sort of, yeah. I, you know, I assume you, so it's, it's like paint by numbers. Like, okay, well, they're going to fight. You know, they cross dimensions, they meet up, they're going to fight. They decide they can't fight. And then the villains team up and the good guys have to take down the villains. And so you just have these sort of fun matchups, like, you know, Shredder yeah. and the Joker, or Rachel. It's not going to be Stormwatch yeah. aliens. There's few and far between sort of crossovers that are, you know, satisfying and advance the story forward, like like Stormwatch, uh, Stormwatch aliens. I think the the ones that you're kind of the more common occurrence are, are ones that are maybe bad or mediocre, <laughs> like uh, like Green Lantern or uh, versus. Predator, or I think it might have even been uh, Justice League versus uh, Predator, uh, ooh, and, ooh, and even the the Marvel versus Spider Man, yeah, or even the Marvel versus DC, the massive crossover at its time where they they tried to fit everything in, and it just meant that there was no space for any single thing that was satisfying because it would be a, a panel versus of Lobo versus Wolverine, and a panel versus of a Storm versus Wonder Woman. And, um, you know, it was just a bit of fanboy service rather than anything that was, you know, very satisfying. The, the sort of the amalgam universe where they were able to spotlight solo mashed up characters um, was a little bit more interesting because of, uh, yeah, it's a chance to just look at one individual character and, and have some quite interesting creative teams on them as well. This is, to me, this is, um, I don't know how far back Hasbro was planning on this, but to me, this is one more stop along the way to a live action Snake Eyes movie that you have a rollout of merchandise, uh, convention appearances, news and, uh, and, and toys to raise awareness and excite your audience. And, mm. you know, anything that's going to help that Snake Eyes movie, I'm, I'm all for, uh, I will buy this comic and I, I don't think I was going to make it to issue three otherwise. <laughs> um, but, you know, this this isn't how I saw these two worlds colliding. Yeah, a very good point. Yeah, all about that brand, brand awareness. I hadn't thought of that. That's, um, yeah, very on point. Okay, so that is, uh, that is Snake Eyes and Batman talked about. Um, and uh, before we run out of time for the rest of the show, Shall we get on <laughs> to talking about uh, Devil's Due issue five? Yes, let's do. We're gonna talk about coming from Devil's Due. 
It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh. Okay, so this is G.I. Joe issue 5 from 2002. We've got story and layouts from Josh Blaylock, pencils from Eric Wolf Hansen, inks John Larter and Barbara Schultz, colours Hi-Fi Designs, letters Dreamer Designs, military consultants SFC Brian Savage-Peterson, graphic design from Mike Norton and edit Scott Whirl. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So uh, the main cover is Duke Falling by uh, Steve Kirth there. What do you guys think? When the when the image was revealed, uh, either at the end of issue four or in the catalogs way back when, I immediately thought of John Byrne's cover for the original G.I. Joe issue 20, where Clutch is falling away from us. And, uh, and I thought, oh no, a cover swipe. You shouldn't resort to a cover swipe in your fifth issue. Uh, it's actually a, a, a different pose. It's the same idea. Um, it's a really exciting image uh, that, that Steve Kurth pulls off. Um, the coloring is a little, a little bit much for me because there are mm-hmm. highlights on the guns and uh, there's a highlight on his belt buckle. Um, I think his, his expression is uh, somewhere between sort of silly and dramatic. Um, but you know, there's there's some great foreground stuff as this rope, this cord uh, that he's attached to, uh, as it gets close to us, close to the camera in the upper left corner, the the ink line gets really thick, and there's some mm-hmm. uh, roof tiles uh, that are uh, at the top of the image that are out of focus. I don't I don't love this effect where a colorist will blur something mm-hmm. in the ink art to make it look like it's moving fast i feel yeah, like I that is not very well i think yeah, that's I think an artificial that's an artificial layering and i think the artist should have drawn it somehow uh blurred or with speed lines um it's sort of treating comic book art which is flat like like live action in mm-hmm. film with a camera lens um but it gets the job done and we get the sense that he's falling and these mm-hmm. pieces of roof are falling too. Yeah, these slates. Yeah, I think I saw a, a recent tweet from, from one of the people involved. It might have been uh, might have been um, Steve Kerth or, or perhaps the, the inker, um, John Larter, that, um, that they were they were not satisfied with that blurred effect and would have rather it would uh, would have been left alone. But yeah, I do I, I think I was impressed at the at the time and there's uh, it's a, I think it's a strong image and, and different from your regular, you know, character standing, looking tough, pointing the gun or, you know, something along those lines. There's uh, there's a lot of energy and action and an interesting pers- perspective, as, as as you say, the sort of the it's a hard, hard one to, to, to carry off, not a, not an easy composition to for an artist to necessarily approach. I like this cover. I think. Um... It's it's got a nice perspective, uh, you know. Just look at the people on the street below Duke. There's, you know, everybody is looks to be in in proper perspective. Your your buildings and everything look really good. The angles really good. The face is, yeah, you know, it's not great, but Kurt's getting there, and uh, we we've definitely picked that apart enough as far as his faces and stuff go. The outfit um, 
that you know that Duke has on is is good. His shadowing and everything is really good. I was just looking at this now, thinking um, this might be one of those instances where I think Chris always had a problem that uh, this doesn't exactly happen in the issue. Mm-hmm. There is a scene where he jumps out of a window in Russia, um, mm-hmm. but never quite falls out of a building window in Italy, which is where this looks like it is. But you know, you you see this on the stands it's going to grab your eye and, and hopefully get people to buy it. I want him to be in his normal costume. And I understand that <laughs> I the, agree. In, the interior demands that he be in a tuxedo or his black spy suit and that the cover can reflect that more accurately. But as we'll, as I'll say in a few minutes, I don't love that he's never in his normal GI Joe outfit in the issue, even if the story demands that and where the cover is going to be an exaggeration of the issue Right. If 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 this is for lapsed G.I. Joe fans like, oh, there hasn't been a G.I. Joe comic on the stands in seven years. Hey, what's this G.I. Joe number five? Who's this random blonde guy falling in some black suit? Is that Snake Eyes? Because didn't Snake Eyes have blonde hair? Mm, Did they fix his face? You're Um, right. At the end of the last issue, he was. Yeah, just a plain black suit and a a blonde hair. This totally could be Snake Eyes if you didn't know any better. So from Mm, a branding perspective. Uh, this cover doesn't work from a from a drawing perspective. It's great. Very good point. Um, and the, the outfit being worn sort of a good segue into the back cover. We've got uh, David Michael Beck again on the on the back covers. This time spotlighting Duke. Um, so it's an image of him in the foreground in his new combat togs with a burning tank in the background. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. It's okay. I, I quite like a lot of the picture, but um, overall it doesn't really connect. I think his his face looks a bit strange, to be honest, and I think that lets down the, the rest of the, the composition. Some of the surfaces, and we see this a lot on his covers uh, for the Battle Files books that we'll talk about here in a little bit, the surfaces on uniforms and things look look kind of flat i'm thinking particularly of uh firefly on uh, issue number two uh his his vest um you know it, it looks like a line drawing that was painted there's not a lot of I mean, what's the word i'm looking for not texture but uh you know just it doesn't look real solid i mm-hmm. guess yeah beck beck does well with color and yes. light uh, his his color and his light are stronger than his anatomy. Um, many of his compositions are are bold and striking, and I wonder if he is better served by fantasy art, where if he's painting a cave or a dragon, um, something that we don't have as much reference to compare it to, um, where his uh, where his style is sort of stronger than the accuracy of an actual uh, piece of clothing or texture on skin. Um, I I wonder if he's, if he's better served when stuff is, is less realistic. Mm. Um, Some of, some of Duke's anatomy, um, you know, like his face um, on this cover, like his hair is, doesn't quite center on his forehead. Um, Or or scanner's hair. It looks more like kind of a replication of hair in, in much the way that, the uh, the you know the big GI Joe figures would have their real you know lifelike hair, 
sort of seems to, to be closer to that than, than what you might expect to be on a human head. <laughs> if I care. Is this an actual um, Duke action figure costume? Does this correspond to an action figure from about 2002? I think this is taking the same inspiration as the Duke that we saw uh, in issue four, the, the new sort of toy design. Okay. Um, it's not completely faithful to it, but I think it's taking that, that as its uh, jumping off point. I'm seeing a lot of shoulder pads, sort of small shoulder pads and shoulder like armor plating uh, in these Devil's Do issues, you know, like Major Blood's costume. And um, and one of the points that I'll make with the Battle Files is that uh, Devil's Do has to contend with some of the then new G.I. Joe toy designs, which are um, inconsistent. Um, I look at this. I look at this costume and it uh, on the David Michael Beck back cover, and it reminds me of Sergeant Savage, um, not the Sergeant Savage figure from the Sergeant Savage line, uh, but the Sergeant Savage figure from the GI Joe Extreme line. But that's just me because I'm often thinking about GI Joe Extreme. Shall we? Shall we talk <laughs> about the innards? Let's do it. Let's find out what happened on the inside with a plot breakdown. Take it away, Jay. Following the dissolution of the Cobra organization, Major Sebastian Blood was captured and detained at Fort Leavenworth Prison. Two years after his imprisonment, Blood incited a riot and escaped in the confusion. Former first sergeant of the G.I. Joe team, Conrad Hauser, codenamed Duke, is now working for an elite black ops division of the U.S. government. He has been tasked with bringing Blood to justice for the murder of the G.I. Joe team original commander, General Lawrence Flagg. Infiltrating a high society gathering in the former Soviet Union, Duke finds information that places blood in Italy. After double-crossing both his associates and buyers in an arms deal, Blood dones his familiar costume and notifies his commander that he'll rendezvous with him in Rome. However, while making his escape in a speedboat, Blood is soon tailed by three men on jet skis. Blood loses two of the men but is attacked by the third, Duke. A high-speed chase ensues with Blood in a stolen car and Duke on a borrowed motorcycle. Catching up to Blood, Duke plants an explosive device on the side of Blood's car. Blood leaps out of the car at the last minute as it careens over a hillside, bursting into flames. Duke tells Blood there's no escape, but Blood follows the car over the cliff and into the sea. Later, during a search of Blood's hideout, Duke finds information pointing to the return of the original Cobra commander. Which leads us into G.I. Joe issue one. Um... Yeah, so so a one and, and done flashback issue here set bef immediately before uh, the events of G.I. Joe focusing in really on, on just uh, two main uh, characters, Duke and Major Blood. Where do we want? And we've also got a new artist as well, a guest artist, Eric, Eric Wolf Hansen. So should we start there? Um, yeah, I think he did quite a solid job. Um, certainly, uh, certainly didn't uh, didn't sort of let the side down too much. I think the art is pretty good in this. Um, in a lot of places, it looks a lot like Gary Frank, and uh, Frank is a is a really capable artist. Um, he started out, I think, first came to my attention uh, after Dale Keown on the Incredible Hulk, and mm -hmm. it was kind of a mix between Keown and Davis. And uh, you know, at the time, it was a little bit of get getting used to, but. Very capable artist, and I think um, I think our artist here is is pretty good. It's a little more subdued, I think, than what we had in the first arc, and it doesn't try to be uh, near as splashy or or highly detailed oriented, and that works a lot better for this kind of a property. Yeah, a little bit uh, sort of probably 
slightly less splashy, slightly less style stylized. Um, you know, probably hard to to point point to this style of art out of a lineup and immediately say who the artist was, for example. But uh, uh, but quite solid storytelling through, through uh, the the story for the for the most part, and some yeah interesting uh, interesting elements of the story that sort of sell quite well as it's it's coming along. I'm thinking of, for example, a sequence where he's dragging a um, a computer hard drive you know, attached to a device from his wrist and and then putting his foot up to, to stop it. It's very sort of filmetic and, and possibly quite a difficult sequence to, to probably sell on the page, but but works and, and works well and is uh, easily understood what they're trying to actually achieve. But that credit also goes to Josh Blaylock, who provided layouts for this issue. That's true. Um, my thoughts on uh, Hansen... Um, I wish he had drawn issues one through four because he's not overdrawing. Um, you know, Kurth did get better across the four issues and, you know, got better 10 years later when he did more G.I. Joe. Um, but the first four issues are so busy and uh, the art is trying to be a little hot, you know, like modern hot, you know, cool, like sunglasses, cool. And, um, Hansen, uh, I think, is satisfied with more just telling the story. Um, right. He's I think more his, focused on storytelling. I think his, uh, his, everyone he draws is a little bit, is a tiny bit cute in their faces. There's a softness to how he draws heads, faces, and eyes. The eyes are a little big. Um, <laughs> I think that runs counter to the tone of the story, which is a high-tension, exciting spy mission with an action movie tacked on at the end. So I think uh, if I really squint, I, I don't think uh, he's quite the right artist for this issue. But in terms of drawing everything to be uh, clear, um, he can he can pull off action. There's some good acting where someone makes a face or someone uh, has an expression change. Um um, and I was I was surprised in sort of Googling him that his trail in comics is so short. And uh, you know, sort of the, the main other thing that comes up in my very limited Googling is the Micronauts miniseries that he drew for Devil's um, Due. Interesting. Okay. Did you guys read Velvet? I read the first That's two issues. Some of it. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine Steve Epting drawing this? I can imagine Steve Epting drawing every G.I. Joe story ever. (laughs) (laughs) That would be beautiful. Velvet was just phenomenal. Uh, And that's what a lot of what this issue, I think, it really worked for me, this issue, uh, in a lot of ways. You know, you had a lot of James Bond elements, and that's that's a lot of uh, like what Velvet is with the spy stuff. And, uh, you know, your settings are like that. And this works... um, I just think with a, a little more, especially with a more accomplished artist like like Epting right now, it could be a phenomenal book. Yeah, I mean the 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 con the art aside and the look of it though, the concept of Duke as James Bond, I don't know if that as a concept really feels like GI Joe, um, and and as competent as the the art and the issue generally might be is it in inverted covers gi joe i'm not entirely sure i thought the look of gi joe uh, i i thought the look of duke was a little bit similar actually to uh, steve rogers when he was 
at the in the Steve Rogers Super Soldier book um, from um, Ed Brubaker, I think it was, um, when yeah. he's back from the when he's back from the dead, but Bucky Barnes is wielding the shield, and so uh, he's and sort of having a new guise as more of a sort of Captain America super spy. Um, similar look in terms of all American uh, blonde, square jawed with a kind of uh, super suit. Uh, you know, not too not too far away from Duke's uh, black look here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could just swap the dialogue, and, and this would be uh, this could easily be in, in that same time period. I I think Mark makes a good point. It's not really a GI Joe comic. If this had been a year later in the Devil's Due run and had been a one shot or uh, uh, a special, you know, they, they did those special missions specials later on. Um, as a as an issue of the regular G.I. Joe series, so soon after the miniseries, mm-hmm. I can imagine this losing some people who had come back. Uh, I mean, it's it's an exciting comic, and, and there's some closure at the end because, you know, the, the mission's not successful because uh, blood gets away, but it sort of loops you back to the beginning of issue one. And if you've just read the miniseries, then you now have this additional story level for the miniseries. But um, it's not it's not a military story. It's a spy story. Uh, Duke's never in costume. No other Joes show up. Um, and uh, and it... This is. I don't think this was the right issue to follow up the miniseries, even if they mm. needed a single issue drawn by someone else that um, filled in some story and also gave them a month to catch up with their regular artist for the rest of the series. Yeah, I'm entirely sure that is the reason that they took that this uh, this approach that, that they wanted to to give Steve Kerr uh, a month or two months breathing room to to get him get ahead on the the main series and possibly even the writer give give them a bit of breathing room to think oh, good grief what's going on? you know we we had a four issue arc plotted out and i used up my biggest ideas <laughs> what next yeah, potentially um but but yeah i think it was certainly to to create a stopgap so they could build up a, a bit get get going with the issue six and uh, and beyond i wonder if this was in their plan because we know that the originally reinstated was supposed to be a four issue miniseries um you know, did they think, okay, well, we do the four issues. If that sells well, then we'll jump into the second arc, which would be, I don't know for sure what, how far that goes, but number six and beyond. And then they were given the green light to do five, and they thought, we need to put something in here mm-hmm. or where this originally would have fit into their plan. I, I think it's the combination of the, what the two of you were saying. It's, it's a stopgap, but it also fills in some story. But again, like, I, I'm not convinced... Even even in the in the reinstated arc, I'm not convinced that Duke is now a spy, that he's now in in intelligence. Um, I think Duke or other Joes should and would have done other things after the team is disbanded, but most of them stayed in the military. I just I just want a military story. It can still be you know, spy ish, uh, <laughs> but it should be it should be military adjacent, and and this is not and. Part of what throws me about this issue, um, I don't think this issue is internally consistent because Duke talks to himself, but what he's really doing is he's talking to the reader in a like in a in a cute way that is distracting. So 
you know, I was an Arnold Schwarzenegger fan and I had seen some of his movies. And when he made Last Action Hero, this was now like a big step towards a larger audience because it's PG-13 and it's it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like the movie knows it's a movie because it's about like movies as a construct. Um, and, you know, so on page on page two, uh, Duke's talking to someone. He says, you know, for some reason, out of all the Cobra big shots I encountered in my day, I really couldn't stand that guy. I don't know who he's talking to. I guess he's talking to himself, but he says, you know. But then across the uh, across the fuselage of this cargo plane, there's someone else who's telling him it's time to parachute. But I can't imagine he's talking to that guy because that guy's not important in the scene. And then the the thing that really throws me is on page... Uh, six, where uh, he's tapped into the computer, he snuck away from this party, he's tapped into this computer, and he's transferring data to his um, fancy wrist computer, and two thugs discover him. And he starts to make an excuse. He's like pulling at his collar, and he says, guys, guys, it's not what it looks. Oh, I don't have time for this. And then there's this panel, This is which is the, it's like the, the bottom third of the page. It's a partial splash. Mm. And he takes his tuxedo off to reveal his cool spy outfit beneath <laughs> it and to show that he's got two pistols. I appreciate that it shows that he has two pistols because the next panel, he's holding the two pistols. So we're keeping track of his armament. But it's a silent panel. And this drawing is just to make this page cool. And it's just to make this piece of art sell better. But like actually unbuttoning your tuxedo and taking your jacket off uh, takes like 40 seconds and if you are sneaking around a bad guy's mansion and you're stealing something, you're not going to do that. And it's this thing that that characters do in movies and TV shows where they say something that's funny or cool for the benefit of the audience, but that yep. no one would actually say or do in the scene because they, you just get shot. Um, well, he has experience ripping clothes off, right? Wasn't wasn't he in that Magic Mike movie where they were strippers and they just whoosh, ripped the clothes off? <laughs> ha. Okay. Oh, I'm thinking of Channing Tatum, not actually Duke. Sorry. You see this tone problem where it's like, I'm not I'm not worried that he might get shot by Major Blood. I'm not worried that Major Blood's going to get away because Duke is he's sort of cracking jokes as he does this and. Mm. I don't mind if if Blaylock decides that Duke should now have a, a sense of humor, but like, you would just pull your gun out of your tuxedo and shoot those guys. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't like for the coolness of the reader who really wants to see Duke's cool costume take a moment to take off your tuxedo. That's dumb. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason for him to do that. Not only is he wasting time taking off that tuxedo and showing. Uh, his enemies as it as you know as plays out in the scene his cool new look um and then sort of you know having to then sort of unpick his outfit take the things off the arms to then get to his guns all the time that they could be raising the alarm or be shooting at him it's in, entirely non nonsensical and a, and a similar thing actually happens later on in the book which is that major but blood has, has just mm -hmm. um done something and explode exploded a building and is making a getaway on a speedboat but before he does that, he, he takes the time to make a costume change yeah. out of his suit and into his armor, which, you know, that, that is not uh, that is not conducive for a quick, speedy getaway. And you're not only, 
and, and this was the point actually I was going to make about Duke, what, is that not only is he blowing his cover by taking off his tox and me, meaning that he can't then go back through the party in, in his disguise, but he's also just wasting a ridiculous amount of time to, to do so from a actual story perspective it makes no sense at all let me make but. a quick criticism about the art I, I for the most part like i said i i like it i think it works better than uh than kurth did in, in issues one through four but this page that we're looking at right now with uh you know duke revealing his super spy suit the panel right above that where he's starting to take the suit off that face is like wow with the big grin and the, and the big huge eyes oh I was just like, what What kind of crazy face is he making there? And then we see the same thing later on, kind of, where Blood is about to double-cross uh, his associates, and, and he's got just a really super big grin on his face. Those are a little little too much for me. Going back to this thread of, of critiquing Eric Wolf Hansen's art, um, sometimes in comics I see in... A comics artist what I think is someone who learned to draw comics by looking at comics and certainly that's how a lot of people learn to draw comics right all the people at Very Marvel point. all the people at Marvel in the 70s and 80s were just swiping Kirby and Gil Kane and Romita and the editors were encouraging them to do that um, but when I look at all of these faces and some of the some of the full bodies, some of the full bodies are a little short, a little stubby. Some of the faces, the actual eyes, nose, and mouth feel a little off axis to the center of the skull. I, I see an artist who, I think, learned to draw comics more from looking at comics than from looking at real life. Like going outside and drawing trees, drawing people, figure drawing, uh, that kind of thing. So everything's convincing. Hands, perspective, tech equipment, motorcycles. Uh, but when you really zero in on sort of anatomy and faces and um, sort of how how someone stands when they're behind a computer, how someone stands when they're nervously tugging their collar, uh, a lot of it's a little off. Yeah, that goes back to what I said about Steve Epstein on Velvet. I mean, you look at that, and there's so much in there that um, probably he used photo reference for and i remember for a long time there you know there was kind of a feeling that oh you shouldn't use photo reference we don't want it to look like real life i have never agreed with that i think that the closer it looks to real life i mean you don't want it to be static um but you know you look at, at something like velvet and it looks like a movie and again, I think if, if we had something more along those lines with this, this issue would work a lot better. That that comparison, uh, again, I'd love to see Epting draw some G.I. Joe. Epting's been drawing comics for 30 years. Yeah. And this might be, you know, Hansen's, you know, third sure. month in comics. Um, and I didn't like a lot of Epting's earlier stuff. His, his, mm. his run on the Avengers in the 90s, I did not like at all. Hmm. Hmm. There's something else in the story which throws me off a little bit. And that is that uh, there are some characters that show up, and I don't know mm. if we're supposed to know who they are or not. So the other guy uh, on this cargo plane who says to Duke, it's time to jump out of the plane and parachute, when Duke um, jumps out the window to get away from the, the mansion when he's been discovered, mm -hmm. a helicopter picks him up, and uh, there's someone 
uh, in the helicopter who's uh, manning the door gun, who's covering Duke while Duke climbs up the ladder. And that guy has two lines of dialogue, but he's all in black and he has red night vision goggles. And then, uh, and then similarly, uh, during this um, speedboat chase where two or three, it's a little hard for me to follow, guys are chasing Major Blood, one of them has a sword strapped to his back. Mm. And I don't know if that's um, Blaylock or Hansen sort of casually, accidentally just putting gear, cool gear on someone. But I'm led to believe that this team, this intelligence squad that Duke is now a part of is decidedly not G.I. Joe. If you put a person in all black chasing Major Blood and you give them a sword, I'm going to assume that's Snake Eyes. Mm. And I didn't I didn't like stop cold in my tracks when reading this comic and say snake eyes great <laughs> but i did it did stop me and i and i thought who is this am i supposed yeah. to know who this is am i gonna know who this is when i when they when i turn the page and that person like gets thrown off their speedboat and falls in the river and then they don't show up again so this issue asks a few questions that it doesn't answer and that i don't think it intended to answer and that throws mm. me off I think I've, I'd speculate on on that character with the sword on on their back. The you know you, your initial assumption might be it's must be Snake Eyes in black, got a sword on his back, but he's someone who's talking. So okay, that can't be Snake Eyes. Then then there's the redesign of the the Jinx costume where she's got this kind of black gimp suit going on, uh, but but this has got this is someone with a sort of a male uh, musculature. So okay, it can't be Jinx. Although you know she's she's in a very similar suit with a you know a ninja. So Okay, that's a bit confusing, but but no, and, and just sort of in the course of this discussion, what what it's made me think that might supposed to be is um, Kamakura because it alludes to Duke kind of having some ties to to Snake Eyes and Kamakura doing some sort of sneaky work for him at the very beginning of issue one. So so possibly that that might make some degree of uh, sense, even if it's yeah, I remember that. only very lightly alluded to here. I think that um, as as exciting and competent, I, I don't mean to damn by faint praise. This issue is more than competent. This issue is good. I think as as competent as as Blaylock is running this company, writing and laying out this issue that Scott Whirl is, is editing it. And I don't know to what extent he's actually editing story versus sort of like controlling the art and the story and the letters and the color, like being the person who, who packages it. This issue to me, and to some extent the previous issues, reveal a small young company that's not quite ready to take on this task. I feel like a, a an editor who's got um, more time or breathing room or a brand manager who's sort of with this fine tooth comb that, you know, we can do from the safety of 2020 hindsight. Like, no, that, that needs to be explained. Why does that guy have a sword? Or if it's Kamakura, someone needs to name him. Or in the next issue, we need to immediately and concretely refer back to this. Again, sort of these questions that are getting asked that either don't have answers or no one is telling me when I'm going to get the answers. I feel like this just needs to be a little bit more cohesively managed. Yeah, they're not quite there yet. Mm. Okay. Um, let's uh, move on maybe to some fashion talk. 
Armani, Prada, Versace too. Joe's changed their outfits from black to blue. Duke and Hawk, look but don't gawk. Changing their kit, whoa, is that legit? Swapping camo jackets, headgear and boots. It's now neon colours and funky space suits. Sci-fi stalker and even Roblox. While Bill, Flint and Muck gave me a shock. So go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion. Because it's comic book talk and lovely G.I. Joe fashion. So I think uh, we've probably talked a little bit about uh, um, Duke's spy suit to, to death now um so let's maybe just touch on major blood's look what what do you think of of that as a re uh, as an update to his kind of classic look he's uh the sort of the green colors combo up it up and down his arms he's got armor not too far away from what he had before he's got a couple of gray turtle shells on either shoulder <laughs> there yeah. um what what strikes me the most is probably that that helmet that i think they've tried to go for a slightly um, more tangible real world look to it that the kind of he's got these hints of maybe some padding inside the the helmet that might make it work as a real world helmet and sitting on a on his head even if i don't think it, it probably doesn't stay on for too long i think it does fall off in a couple of places um yeah unfortunately he uses he loses his uh his classic um rocket glove um sort of robot arm as some people might call it uh they they sort of the armored uh, glove that his v1 figure has got and he doesn't have those uh dog tags around his neck any any longer so possibly losing some of the more interesting elements of his original costume yeah i'm just not a fan of of this uh this outfit for major blood i, I didn't like it in the first arc um i think like you said there's some elements of the original outfit that are there but it's just not it's just not hitting it the way that the the original uh, iconic version did that that rocket arm like you said was a huge part of of the look of the character um you know it was a great design initially if you're not going to do something that really stands out then i don't i don't feel like that needed to be messed with at all this i don't know i mean this outfit just doesn't do anything for me there's a trend in a lot of design over the last 20 30 years movie design comic book design toy design to more detail uh like all the current transformers uh for the uh, war for cybertron right rather than like a smooth cube for a shoulder they've got lots of small raised bits and little grooves um you know brian hitch drawing the ultimates mm -hmm. which clearly was an influence on this book as it was on lots of comics in the early 2000s um you know that that ribbing on pants and gloves and elbow pads is going to be sort of realistic that people aren't wearing just cloth pants or spandex that they're wearing actual sort of athletic or like rock climbing clothing um uh, you know, Hollywood movie design, just think of like the live action Green Lantern movie where like, you know, the costume is sort of this organic thing rather than just being a smooth uh, thing. And uh, design in general for me sort of hits a sweet spot when it's a little simpler or closer to the middle. Um, and uh, as much as as exciting as Brian Hitch's work on the Ultimates was, because it was so realistic, these drawings, these costumes, um, when it carries over to something like G.I. Joe, um, it doesn't 
always mean better. So, you know, uh, Duke's costume here, you know, he's got shoulder, uh, he's got elbow pads and the straps around his elbows, and he's got the little wrist ribbing for his gloves. And then similarly, Major Blood has all this extra stuff on him. And if you look at the outside of his helmet, there are all these additional grooves and contours that remind me of the movie Cobra Commander helmet from G.I. Joe Retaliation as compared to the animated Cobra Commander helmet from the 1980s. And um, all that stuff is just harder to draw, you know? Like, uh, I, I think of all these people who are drawing DC Comics for the last 10 years, and when the new 52 showed up in 2011, and Jim Lee and three other people, but particularly Jim Lee, redesigned like all the DC costumes, just everyone now had so much additional stuff, like lines and little armor plates and those like hard knuckles for Batman to punch a bad guy in the face and like knee knee pads shaped like the Batman logo. And like Superman had a, an S shield outline on his shoulders for no reason. More doesn't necessarily mean better. And there is an elegance in simplicity um, and... So if you have to make Major Blood's costume look more, quote, realistic, um, I, I like this because I think a lot of that stuff actually would be there. But for a comic book that's already fantastical, I don't need it. Why do you think, Tim, I was just thinking about this as you were saying that, um, it didn't seem when you read The Ultimates, at least it didn't seem to me like the seams on the costumes and the ribbing and, and that kind of thing, like any of that stuff was um, out of place or too much, you know. But then you mentioned the new 52 designs. If you look at that, you look at the Superman costume, the Batman costume, and it's different somehow. Like like you said, it just doesn't need that stuff. Do you think that's more because Hitch just has a general, more realistic style overall as opposed to a lot of the other new 52 stuff? Or, or why... And maybe it's just me, but I feel like it works better when Hitch does it than with the, uh, you know, like with this artist or, or, or with the, the 50, the new 52 redesigns. Uh, this, this is a good question and this is a good point. And I, I think I have half of a formed answer. Hitch integrates everything um, in a way that Jim Lee integrates everything. When we think of uh, Jim Lee's X-Men, Jim Lee's Wildcats, Jim mm -hmm. Lee's Justice League, it all works because it is all of a piece. We expect a high level of detail and bits and stuff on all these characters. When another artist draws uh, like Zealot from Wildcats, when another artist draws Jim Lee's Superman redesign, it sticks out. When other artists try and draw the Brian Hitch Ultimates costumes, they may not work as well. And, and I think what's happening with Eric Wolf Hansen's art is very, very subtly the the sort of level of detail that he's putting into uh, the costumes is uh, fighting the slightly cartooniness to his faces. Uh, and then also, because I'm always going to go back to color, uh, the coloring is too busy. So the page where Duke jumps off his ski boat, uh, jet ski, and punches Major Blood um, there's just a lot going on this page, right? There's there's a lot going on in the inking. There are lots of highlights in the color that don't need to be there. 
the actual drawing is very energetic. And again, I think more simplicity in a lot of these, a little less penciling, a little less inking, a little less coloring uh, would be elegant. And this is an extreme example, but um, I was thinking of the two issues of Matt Fraction's Hawkeye that Brian Polito drew at the beginning of that run. Uh, issues, I think it's five and six. Um, Polito's drawing with this really flat graphical style that owes more to Steve Ditko than to uh, like the sort of the Marvel House style of uh, 2015. And I think a lot of G.I. Joe fans would be very upset if Brian Polito drew an issue of G.I. Joe because his stuff is so flat and uh, sort of boxy. I think his stuff is awesome. And I think, you know, again, like the page where uh, the panel where Major Blood sticks his gun at a motorist because he's going to steal his car. I really like that panel because um, he's he's saying something, but he's really doing it. He's holding the, you know, my Italian's not the best, but I'm going to assume this 45 will do the translating for me. And the motorist looks scared with his gun pointed at him. Right. But they're also like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten highlights on the car because it's a shiny car in daylight. Yeah, it's unnecessary. This was still early on, too, in the days of computer coloring, I think, where they had all these new tricks and they they wanted to use them as much as they could. Um, And I think maybe in the more more recent years, they've, they've kind of toned a lot of this stuff down. But, I mean, you know, you'll look at a lot of comics from this era and there are a lot of, uh, like the panel that you just cited, the, the highlights on the car, it, it's just not needed. You know, and a lot of that stuff, when they come back now and they recolor it, they tone a lot of that stuff down and it, and it looks a lot better. Well, let's not get too far down a Hawkeye uh, rabbit hole because this is talking Joe, not talking Hawkeye. But I, <laughs> yeah. uh, while, Tim was re- while Tim was talking, I actually reached behind me and, and got my Hawkeye volume one and I was just flicking through issues four and five by uh, Javier Pulido. And there was, yeah, some interesting parallels actually between those two issues and and issue number five of G.I. Joe that we were reading because we've got Hawkeye who is, uh, who's got his blonde uh, crew cut, much like Duke. They're trying to sneak in and and steal something. Um, Hawkeye is launched through a window and we have uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. in their spy suits including uh, uh, Nick Shield Jr. in his uh, suits, the one that I was talking about that, that was similar to Duke's earlier. And, uh, and yeah, there's some interesting connective uh, tissue there. Uh, but my conclusion is that I probably would rather reread uh, Hawkeye rather than this issue, <laughs> to be honest. And I, apolo- and I apologize for getting Javier Polito, who drew two issues of Hawkeye and some great, amazing Spider-Man issues, confused with brian polito who's the lady death guy so yes I, I meant to say javier polito i'm sorry that's what i thought and i was gonna say that we should get brian polito to do a baroness one shot do we wrap up talking about this issue so we can get to <laughs> battle files was there any i spies before we wrap up uh just one quick one uh on page 15 when duke is um passing a bunch of motorists on a motorcycle someone behind him is um shaking his fist at him saying reckless american Mm -hmm. um but it's in quotations which i don't understand (laughs) i wasn't sure about that who is this man quoting 
I think they, they were meant to be using their pointy brackets to indicate that they're talking Italian rather ah. than quoting that famous expression, reckless American. Yeah. Mm. The one I noticed was that uh, they, they, they were leaning into some of uh, Major Blood's file card details. So they were talking about him being from Australia, um, his Australian uh, Special Air Service and Foreign Legion background and, and that kind of... Uh, kind of thing the i spy that i noticed was again the same page that you're talking about where they where they're going into blood's history um, one of the lines that says subject is uh, qualified expert in all nato and warsaw packed small arms and if you read all the original file cards that was on almost every joe's original file card that they were an expert in all nato and warsaw packed small arms indeed yeah and it is on his file card, indeed, it says, yeah, qualified expert, all NATO and Warsaw backed small arms. Um, since, I, yeah. since I spent a minute um, frowning at the coloring in this comic, I will say on the third to last page where the sun, the sunset, is hitting Duke and these cops, uh, and there are a lot of hard edges, really, really nice. Good job, hi-fi. Hi-fi, hi-fi. I'm tempted to just skip past favorite line of dialogue. Um, it Unfortunately, Blaylock doesn't seem to have quite the same ear for interesting and memorable and notable dialogue that, that I'm used to seeing from from Larry Hammer. There wasn't anything that, uh, that I particularly uh, caught my, my eye here. I like, uh, I like um, Ugh, no, not the cord. And you refer to this scene. <laughs> no, no, seriously. You referred to this scene at the beginning because this is a bit of really nice visual storytelling where Duke is downloading data from this cpu um and the computer is about to fall off the desk and he he's lying on his back behind it dodging bullets and he reaches his foot up to keep the the computer from falling and both as layouts and also as drawings blaylock and hansen pull off a nice little story beat yeah i thought when that was mentioned earlier that that as an artist if you got a uh you got that description on your page. It might be kind of tricky to figure out how to work that. So yeah, it was nice probably for, for Blaylock to actually do the layout for that, for Hanson to work from. But I, I agree that yeah. um, Blaylock doesn't have the, I mean, it, again, it's it's sort of hitting, I don't want to hit over the head, like Blaylock and Hama are different writers. And, yeah. uh, I, and I, my loyalty is with the Marvel run of comics, but I would agree that um, there's nothing super snappy in the dialogue yet. The one line of dialogue that I liked was uh, just Duke from the beginning when he says, out of all the Cobra big shots I encountered in my day, I really couldn't stand that guy. Which I thought, yeah, Blood always seemed like a like a real <laughs> dirt bag. You know, out of, a, out of a bunch of dirt bags, he was probably the biggest one. Should we give this one a, a yo-joage? Using the, ch- the chief kind of rule of thumb that anything, anything above a five, is uh, not a regrettable read. I think I'm I'm tempted to almost go lower because I'm I, if I was going to reread this collection again uh, at some point soon in the future, I might skip parts past this issue. To be to be fair, so I think I'm going to go low. I might go four point five on it. It's not it's not bad. It's just that I don't feel I would ever want to necessarily revisit this one. I give this a five because as a self-contained issue, it's relatively satisfying and it is better than the four previous issues. Okay, I'm going to shock you guys. Um, I agree with you both. It is better than the first four. 
Uh, and considering that I gave them a 6.5, I'm going to have to give this one a 7. Wow. Yeah. More Duke Spy Comics for Jay. I love spy comics. <laughs> I really do. I mean, this one had its okay. faults, but, uh, you know, it was pretty good for what it was. You had the... The, the the chase I really enjoyed, you know, they even threw in there the the uh, typical trope of, of running over a fruit cart and fruit going everywhere. You know, they had two or three different vehicles that they that they used. They were on speedboats and jet skis and then Duke's on a motorcycle, Blood's in a car. Um, you know, it ends on a hillside. Uh, yeah, there was a lot to like about it for me. Mm. Yeah, and, and I get that it, it sort of is probably a better comic than the first four four issues the 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 art is is probably slightly stronger or clearer the the issues with the lettering that we've seen are, are largely improved the pacing is much more straightforward the story is easy to to follow so there's a lot that's that's done probably better it's just as a story that I'd want to revisit probably not yeah so so yeah while I while the the issue itself is probably stronger than the first four I'd probably more be more interested in going back and re-looking at those force first four again. Mm. We said we'd also talk about battle files. So this was a three issue special that that um, is promoted actually in the back of issue five. So it started coming about about this same that same time, and it was divided into issue one looking at the Joes, issue two looking at Cobra, and issue three looking at the weapons and tech and and vehicles, and um, was collected all together in a trade paperback and it's yeah, interesting to speculate perhaps on why this this came out and i've got you know some thoughts on it i think it's it's probably that that this the gi joe ish uh, you know book was so successful and they i think they just wanted to get more product out there and so that this was a relatively simple exercise to do because what they're doing in terms of the the words is they're very much leaning into the file card detail for each figure and some of the comic book you know content so so someone with a access to the file cards information and a good passing knowledge of the of the comics and ability to kind of flesh it out a little bit more with some you know wording around it was would be able to put together most of that dialogue not dialogue the, the text relatively quickly and they farmed out the art to a total of 22 artists so with each artist doing just a few pieces each again relatively probably quite a quick process to get all of that art done um, and, and in and in terms of sort of filling this gap and meeting a need um, they're going for this sort of nostalgic gi joe audience of lapsed you know either lapsed readers or you know readers without uh, content that, that they could actually read in in those sort of five or so years since the end of the marvel run so it's a way of familiarizing people with these joes that they might not have seen uh, or been thinking so hard about for for a, for a number of years giving a bit of a solo spotlight for for each one in terms of reminding them what they're all about what their characters are, are about and also giving a little bit of a spotlight on the uh, the updated designs of some of these guys as well where again you can't you can't have a sp just as you can't have an individual story about each of these where you can these characters where you can find out about all of their backstory you can't necessarily have a splash page for them either where you can really sort of show off a big splashy full fade full page um, picture of their their whole outfit um, and, the, and the redesign so it's kind of meeting those various needs of let's get some product out there let's reintroduce these guys and, and sort of show off some of that that new design and, and let's give a tool to to remind lapse readers of of who these characters are and what they're all uh, all about 
I agree with all that. Also worth noting, each of these is double-sized. Each of these is 48 pages and square-bound. Um, and the regular Joe issues are 24 pages. These are 5.95, so double the price. And uh, I have to believe these are less expensive to produce because hiring someone to draw a pinup with no background is less than hiring them to draw a page. So um, adding to this idea, Mark, of getting product out there, this is about making money. These three issues were each six bucks cover price, and there's nothing on the back cover. So no artist was hired to create a piece of art that would go on the back cover. And for that matter, the designer didn't even reuse some art from inside or from a previous issue. Should we have a quick look at some of these covers? Let's not go too crazy on it, but we've got a, a Joe cover, a Cobra cover, and weapons tech cover, plus a, plus a collected cover as, as well. I'll, I'll, reiterate, I'll reiterate my point that David Michael Beck has a strong sense of light and... I don't know what technique he's using. I think there might be a lot of colored pencil in how he's painting. But uh, issue one, very clearly uh, daytime. Issue two, uh, there's some really nice sort of low ambient light behind them. And then a, a modest um, yellow light source on the left. And then the final one, it's a gorgeous red yellow sunset. Um, there's something in his technique, and I don't know sort of how it happens from, you know, paint and colored pencil, where all of his textures look dry to me. And this is a contrast from, say, uh, Dave Dorman, who painted a lot of G.I. Joe art inside of Hasbro and also, you know, Star Wars covers for books and comic books. Dave Dorman's textures are often silky. And I mean that both sort of tech, uh, skin and rocks and metal on tanks and clothing. Um, David Michael Beck's textures are very dry, which um, is just very different, and, and it's not something we see with with painted G.I. Joe art. Okay, interesting. And I think what I'll, I'll quite like to do is take a slightly different tack to, to this one. We're not going to go all the way through one and look at all of the, the details, but kind of what was your what was your feeling about about these? And I think we our approach to reading this kind of got to a similar place where where we, we probably started reading through and reading through quite a lot of detail and flicking through, but kind of running out of energy and, and maybe not not especially digging the or getting excited by the content too much. And so I was I was flicking through the you know the uh, through the pages, looking at some of the the, the biogs that, that sort of caught my eye, but mostly just taking a look at the the the, the figure designs and and looking at some of the, the the, the different art styles and the artists that were were there and uh doing that for issue one and two but being left entirely cold by um issue three which is quite a different tone to it, it, it i don't think they were credited artists in issue th issue three to the extent that they were in issues one and, and two and i got the impression that they're almost recycling hasbro art that was already available so there, there are credited artists in issue three, but yes, they do reuse some previously made or then contemporary Hasbro toy packaging art. Jay, you start. What's your overall feeling about this, about this three issue miniseries? Well, you mentioned that they were five ninety five a piece. Um, the cynic in me says that it's a money grab, but I, actually, I think that they really they do work for what what they're intended to be. 
Uh, the property was gone for, what, seven years? And, um, you know, obviously they're not using, in in the new series, they're not going to use all of the characters and all of the things like there were, and I don't know, I haven't gone any, I haven't read any further than, than where we are now, so I don't know for sure if we're not using some of these characters. But, you know, my guess is we're probably not going to see things like Toxo Vipers, you know, and, and the Dinosaur Hunters, whatever they were. So this kind of gives you a a recap, you know, and, and maybe a reintroduction of some of the characters that we haven't seen yet and, and kind of reminding people like, hey, look, G.I. Joe also has this guy airtight, you know, and barbecue who we haven't seen. So, you know, in that in that that respect, it works. Uh, some of the drawings are a little better than others. I, I, I like most of Mike Norton's drawings. I don't really care for most of the ones that Blaylock did. Um a lot of it goes back to just the redesign of the characters. Uh, and, and, you know, we talked about this earlier with just too much stuff, too many seams and, and ribbing and padding and stuff. And this gives you a chance to really look at some of the redesigns in full and, uh, you know, an, another opportunity to say either, yes, I like that or, or no, I don't like that. Uh, one of the ones that stands out to me that I'm just, I don't, I really don't like at all. And, and he's right on the cover of this issue is uh, Spirit. You know, I understand they might not have wanted to use the original Spirit outfit because, you know, whatever racial appropriation, whatever they want to call it, um, you know, he looks too much like an Indian. I mean, he is an Indian, you know, um, and, and by that, obviously, I mean Native American. But this outfit is like, I don't know, he, he looks like, almost looks like he's, snake eyes partner or something you know he, he he could very easily just have a snake eyes outfit on but is you know no mask and i don't think that that's the best look for spirit um and, and then you have some of the others beachhead you know on the cover is just kind of plain um lady J. when i came to her page i thought that was scarlet at first you know with the 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 quiver on her back and the gun that almost looks like a crossbow so a lot of the redesigns just don't work for me. It was an interesting point you said about Spirit, the, the, that not connecting with you, because I think at the time that was one of the uh, best received redesigns that people said that yeah, his original was maybe not particularly politically correct and, and it was uh, overdue a, a redesign. And really? Yeah, a lot, really? a lot of people really did like that that Spirit and it resulted in in it, in it being used as the basis for... I think a number of, of figures actually but yeah certainly at least uh, at least one what do you think tim i completely agree with you jay and i and i felt that way when this at at the time because i think i bought issue one of battle files at the time and then realized it wasn't for me mm -hmm. um but from the cover to his uh to his interior um the thing actually that that two two things stick out to me in issues one and two. Uh, first, I think everyone does a good enough job. None of the I don't think any of the drawings are bad, and some of the ones that uh, uh, some of the ones that I I don't think I would like I actually like. I actually like all of Blaylock's drawings. Um, I think where he is slightly flattening and cartooning these characters, where he is simplifying that actually is taking out some of these bits in detail uh, in, a They're not terrible. in a satisfying way. In issue two, Mike Zek draws about three 
and Dave Johnson draws a couple and subtly Mark Brooks as well. Uh, yes. And, and Mark Brooks, um, his stuff back then was more exaggerated and a little caricaturish in his proportions. Uh, he didn't, he hadn't grown into the artist that he, he became later, but the Zek ones out of nostalgia and because of his very subtly, like gorgeous inking and the Dave Johnson ones from his like utter control over a line and his, his sort of combination of flatness and dimensionality subtly those two make the rest of them pale in comparison and i remember thinking that at the time that like zek is so affiliated with this brand from his run of covers uh from the marvel years that putting him in here just a little bit is such an unfortunate tease and then having someone of dave johnson's caliber um and he became i mean he was already good then he became tremendous a few years later mm. um uh the other thing that that i that i jump jumps out at me is that so many of these profiles take a couple of words to denote that or when a Joe codename came into existence. So, for example, um, before joining G.I. Joe, Brad's nickname among his pilot friends in the Air Force was Ace, taking the name Airtight, Kurt dot 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 dot. Um, choosing the codename Beachhead, Wayne accepted an offer dot dot dot. Sorry, I don't like that. Um, that could be an interesting story. I think some of it is that it gets repetitive because sort of every other Joe, there's a phrase like that in the same way that the final paragraph of every Joe and mm -hmm. Cobra um, profile is the same, which is like, um, then we did issues one through four and this Joe came back. Or then we did issues one through four and this Cobra kind of came back, but we didn't see them very much. Um, so from a writing perspective, it's 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 like that seven year jump. In in theory, I love the idea of sort of learning when or that these characters chose a code name or got saddled with one. When I'm actually reading sort of a half baked sentence about it, it just sticks out oddly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the 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 words used on these on these biogs is is generally quite flat. You you get a, something to do with their file card being expanded couple of references maybe to, to what happened in the original run and then a couple of sentences about what has happened in the first four issues and possibly some of the you know alluding to my what might have happened in the in the gap as as well yeah and, and talking about yeah what happened in the gap what they've done particularly on the joes since leaving gi joe it's just quite formulaic and not particularly exciting and what struck me actually about the joes is that um Generally, they've done they've they've done well <laughs> since leaving GI Joe. They've been pretty successful in their careers and doing interesting things, and and probably be, be uh, much more financially rewarded. So, um, you know, clearly, <laughs> they're just alluding to the fact that just as we as fanboys are nostalgic for the GI Joe property and and it's come back, so we'd obviously want to buy it. You know, the GI Joes themselves must be nostalgic and and want to drop what they were doing in their successful careers at the first opportunities and also come back to it on their uh you know on their not especially advantageous military pay i was kind of surprised by roadblocks uh, bio that said that he had a cooking show or something i think and and, and produced a series of books and was like a well-known chef and, i mean that'd be like emerald lagasse going back and joining the joes after doing you know being drafted to the military for two years 
before he became a chef. I'm, I'm like, oh, wow, I don't know about that. But like you said, would he really give all that up to to go put his life on danger or in danger? Yeah, I don't know. Something else that um, jumps out at me from these profile books with 2020 hindsight is that mm-hmm. some of these artists later on would become a little bit more affiliated with G.I. Joe. So, for example, Joe Benitez draws a couple of the Cobra profiles and later on he draws um issue 20 of what's the idw series he did that later silent issue with snake mm-hmm. eyes yeah origins thank you uh draws issue is it 20 of gi joe origins it, it was 21 it was a silent issue okay of, co- of course yeah. um he does well he does well here he's got the snow serpent and baroness and Destro. i think he's uh this is some of the, some of the best work in the book to be honest from my perspective um, and then uh, Dave Johnson uh, did some designs, some animation designs, which were not used uh, a couple years later. And Dan Jorgens draws about three of the Cobra mm-hmm. profiles, and he draws the first frontline arc for Devil's Due that's coming up. Um, and Mark Brooks, I think, has done a couple uh, variant covers for, for IDW. So as a, as a time and capsule... Dave, Dave Johnson did a lot of um, the IDW covers as, as well uh that's true i i've heard that those had been drawn previously and that uh-huh. idw did not commission those at the time for those issues but i i could be wrong interesting um, and yeah. i don't know if hasbro had commissioned them or an earlier licensor had commissioned them um the final issue uh issue three has these vehicles and um i'm really struck whenever i'm reading credits and not an artist, but a team or studio or collective is credited. And so in issue three with all these Joe and Cobra vehicles, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven artists, right? One of whom is Tim Seeley, who's going to be drawing some of the G.I. Joe material from Devil's Due coming up. Um, and then the final credited, uh, quote, artist is Wham Entertainment, W-A-M. And when I saw that, I immediately thought, Who's that? And then I turn the page, and the first image that I see is the G.I. Joe Brawler, which is, uh, you know, sort of a Humvee and heavy duties on the side. And I look at this and I think, oh, that's definitely some package art that Hasbro put on a toy around 2003 that I was ignoring. And um, Wham Entertainment was a... uh, studio founded by Walter McDaniel, who um, started working at Continuity Associates uh, for Neil Adams, the ad agency, or the illustration house ad agency. Um, uh, and he drew Deathlock for Marvel. Walter McDaniel did. He, he drew some, some Deathlock for uh, Marvel. This is not to be confused with Scott McDaniel, different person, different artist. Um, and then uh, Wham Entertainment did work for G.I. Joe and Transformers and Jurassic Park 3 and Men in Black 2 for Hasbro and Kenner. And this is the era when the toys have very comic book looking art on them, both for the figures and for the vehicles. So I haven't I haven't picked out precisely which of these uh, pieces in issue three of Battle Files is reused art. Um, that Hasbro already had, um, but I, you know I can sort of take a guess. Um, and then again, going back to a, a point I made earlier, um, 
ID, uh, excuse me, Devil's Due really has to contend with an uneven era in G.I. Joe design. Some of the characters and vehicles are uh, unchanged from the 80s and 90s. Some of them have really modest updates. Some of them are all new vehicles, which don't really agree with the design ethos of Real American Hero up through 1994. Um, and then some of them may sort of agree, but they've got, I don't know, unappealing color schemes. So issue three, uh, you know, the drawings are all overcolored. You know, a drawing of a gun and a sword and a battle suit is sort of silly to me. But where they're um, sort of revisiting what G.I. Joe Order of Battle did in 86, 87, this four-issue miniseries published by Marvel, where everyone gets a, a profile and all the vehicles get a profile, you know, certainly there was going to have to be an issue with vehicles. I think that this number three is much less successful than numbers one and two. Uh, the biggest reason is because the uh, most of the images of these vehicles are they're like an action shots you know it's like like you mentioned the brawler from the very first page that could be a panel out of a comic book okay yeah it's exciting it shows somebody on the on the vehicle they're firing weapons doesn't give you a really good look at the vehicle though um you know flip a few pages forward there's uh the phantom is really dark you can't see hardly any detail on that the gi joe assault quad on the next page again is is really dark you don't get to see a lot of the detail um i think if you're doing something like an order of battle it should almost be not necessarily as dry as the blueprints are but you know you should be able to see a good side view and maybe even a side and a front view of a vehicle so that you can really get a good look at it you know when i was a kid i loved those order of battles because you did get a good look at things like that and you could look at those and and draw from it um, much easily or much, much more easily than you could, uh, the comic, you know, because in the comic, just like with a lot of these panels, um, the vehicle is shown in story, it's in action. You're not going to get a, a, a real good look at it, but those order of battles gave you the opportunity to, to look at all the details of something that you might not have, um, you know, and, and really see how it's built and how it's put together. And these just, you don't get that at all. Were there any uh, little details or things that, that sort of stuck out for you that um, I'll start with, with one that we, on, on the Mutton Junkyard panel, we, we did get a little bit of storytelling or new news potentially that we had uh, Junkyard 2 as the, the dog. So this is moving on and, and Junkyard 1 is, is an old pooch and has uh, gone to live on the farm. And uh, Junkyard 2 is uh, his uh, replacement. So uh, a little bit of uh, insight into into the characters there uh, that, that actually is, is something newly introduced in the book. I don't think I like that. And uh, it's kind of similar to when, um, you know, you guys were talking about the, uh, the A-Ra issues. And it's been mentioned a couple of times that the timber that we see now is actually the third timber. And... You know, I kind of agree with what Tim said in an earlier episode that we don't want to see these characters age. Mm. You know, I liked, not that he had a whole lot of personality, probably, but, you know, in the cartoon, Timber had a little personality. He wasn't quite Polly, but, uh, you know, he was there and he was a loyal companion to Snake Eyes, and he liked that one. You know, I don't want to think of, oh, this is the third Timber because the original one died, you know, or, 
or this is the second mutt or junkyard because you know the original one's been you know shipped off to some farm because he needed a hip replacement um you know keep those iconic characters and we don't want the i guess we don't want the pets to age but you know they are going to age but um yeah, they're making a big point of this time moving on and the characters yeah. aging, and particularly the the you know the pets aging. But you know, is it necessary? Does it really add anything, or, or would we really just be equally as happy just it being a mutton mutton junk, junkyard? I notice. Tim? Yeah, I notice that um, on Duke's profile page, there's an Eric Wolf Hansen drawing of Duke in his black suit, which matches. Yeah. how we see him in the first issue. And then there is uh, what is definitely an Eric Wolf Hansen drawing on the bottom of the page of Duke in his 1983 yellow shirt costume. And this drawing doesn't match any panel from issue five. Um, and I don't know if it's a little bit of a tryout or uh, some art that was unused from some other something but it's such a tease because i want duke in his regular costume in issue five at least for part of it and here's an actual drawing of duke in his regular costume drawn by the guy who drew uh (laughs) issue five and uh (laughs) and then it's the only page in the entire book Mm -hmm. where someone gets a second drawing besides the full body shot of them so in a second way that's on the same page as the Duke profile. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm looking at the trade paperback version of this, and it's just got the one full page. Oh, interesting. Okay, I, I'll, Duke, I'll... So, so I don't have it. I don't actually have that one in in the copy that I've got. Which so so they've clearly made a decision for the reprint not to not to do that. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. That so paper. Sorry, if that paperback version Mark has the credits page for number five. The image that Tim's talking about is the same image that they use for Duke on the credits page, um, where uh-huh. it gives you the little recap of, All right. of, you know, where he's been. And that's where, I don't know if that's where originally that image came from, but that's definitely where we've seen it before is, is on the, the right, recap page right, for okay. number five. The reca- right. The inside front cover of issue five mm-hmm. has a cropped headshot of Duke and pulled out, we can see his head, his arm, and some of his torso yeah. on this page in battle files number one but it's a tease because um you know uh the official handbook of the marvel universe right which is what sort of kicked off all of this you know dc who's who great uh, dc who's who and gi joe order of battle and transformers universe and gi joe battle files those all had a single sort of profile shot i don't mean like side view i mean in general of of a character and then a few panels from comics appearances in addition to all this text and uh I'd, I'd like a little more from the visuals in battle files clearly they're going for a tech look as compared to the original 1986 gi order of battle which is um which is basically not even designed i mean they had a designer but it's it's so bare bones it's just you know the sort of the the, the dossier shape of that little tab on a, on, with a rounded uh, edge. And here you've got the, the green grid and you've got under each person's name uh, sort of an, a slightly abstracted silhouette of a, of a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, uh, you know, so the, the inter- interstitial pages with like a close-up of the American flag. So 
Um, it's a handsome package. I don't, I don't love the font for the words "Battle Files" on the cover, which looks, you know, the sharp edges sort of look like swords. I feel like that that font should be reserved for like Ninja Force or Ninja Files. I feel like this wants to be a, a military stencil font, the way that it says the Joes on the bottom of issue one or Cobra on the bottom of issue two. The, the covers. Um, but I like that they are at least choosing to aggressively design this three-issue miniseries. But then the back covers are a disappointment because you turn and then you've just got this blank, black, nothing with the Hasbro logo and a barcode. Yeah, I, th- I think the interior pages are, are probably over-designed. Um, and I agree. I think that a lot of that page space could have been used to give more detail or text or images. Um I mentioned the, uh, you know, you mentioned the the Marvel Universe and the DC Who's Who's, and those were really great. I mean, that was what got me interested in reading um, Marvel comics to begin with, because I was a GI Joe fan and I read GI Joe, and really didn't read any any Marvel comics until I started hanging around with a, a another kid that had um, a lot of the X Men comics. And when I went to his house, those were the things I read was the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, because you would have three or four pages of background for a character and there'd be important panels here and there. And it really filled in the gaps for you and, and gave you a, I don't know, a better taste of, of what you could expect if you were to pick up a new issue or if you wanted to try to track down back issues. Yep. So um, that was the battle files. Um, I think we'll have to wrap it up there before I get killed for, for not making dinner. Um, but uh, but yeah, interesting, uh, interesting. If nothing else, sort of uh, look at uh, some of those characters and and sort of just the diversity of of the different artists. I think was for me the most interesting thing to to see. You know, seeing that Mike Zeckard, the the Joe Benitez, the the Dave Johnson, just uh, some interesting different takes uh, from from it. And as, as you search on the internet for those. Uh, character individual characters you'll still a lot of those image will, images will be the ones that that, that come up for them uh, any any final thoughts before we move on guys uh what's the what's the cover for the collection mark i don't have the collection uh it's a bit more of an action shot it's got flint and scarlet down in the front with i think rock and roll and behind them and uh, they've got kind of rocky scene behind them with um, some vipers up on the top of the cliff face with a hiss tank sort of shooting down on them and a sort of ghostly uh, Mufasa type uh, in the clouds image of uh, Cobra Commander in, in there in the background. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting image and, and um, yeah, Flint there is doing quite a, <laughs> a caricatured kind of shouty thing there with his face. But um, I don't think I've ever seen that one either. Interesting. Jay, how do you feel about the texture of the covers? It's that matte stock. Eh, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, and this is kind of goes back to being over-designed. I think that a lot of the stuff is just overproduced, you know, mm. and maybe the, the thick cover is their justification for the five ninety five price point. But, you know, as a kid, I remember buying the original comics when I started buying them, they were 60 cents a piece. I think, um, the order of battles were, I mean, without looking at them right here, maybe a dollar, you know, which was a which was a bit more, you know. So you did feel like you were getting a little more bang for your buck, but it still wasn't outside of 
you know, the realm of affordability for a kid. Um, and when they jumped comics to, you know, three ninety five and especially four ninety five for a lot of them, I think that just takes it out of the the, the realm of kids being able to to get them. A larger uh, topic of conversation for another. <laughs> yeah, so that's a big that's a big topic point to lay down. As, as we're as we're getting this far into the show, Jay, we'll have to pick that one up <laughs> another time. <laughs> Okay, so with uh, with the comic talk talk all done, we can move on to the quiz called Devil's True or Devil's Poo, where I talk about some facts, and Tim and Jay have to decide whether they are true or poo. So here we go. Devil's true, 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 our poo, poo, poo is all I want to know right now. True, 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 or poo, poo, poo. Let's find out the answers right now. I'll start with you. this one for you, Jay. Uh, Devil's Dew turned down uh, Robert Kirkman of Walking Dead fame. They turned down a pitch for a G.I. Joe Zombies story. Wow, I don't know. Uh, still feeling that sting of getting the last couple wrong on our last episode. I'm going to say poo though am i wrong again it is indeed poo i'm I'm sighing because i don't like i don't like it when 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 i can't get one past you i do i do get sense of satisfaction of of (laughs) being able to deceive you so um there is a nugget of truth in this that robert kirkman did pitch a story to the devil's due for for gi joe but this was a story about destro's moon base I just didn't think it quite fit with uh, with the tone that they were going with. So, um, yep, it did pitch and it was turned down, but it was not G.I. Joe Zombies. That's funny because we did get a moon story later in the IDW run. We did indeed, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that that moon-based story did come about in the eventually, but, but not from Kirkman. Tim, Blaylock had developed the idea of Kamakura when he was still a kid and was determined to use him in the book as a star character. Hmm. Oh, this is tough because he's he's a big he's a bigger Transformers fan than a G.I. Joe fan, so I wonder how much time he would have spent coming up with new G.I. Joe characters as a kid. He'd, he'd started off as a Transformers fan, but then changed to his allegiances to, to um, G.I. Joe. Remember, so. Oh, okay. So I'm... he was still a G.I. Joe fan. I'm going to say true. It seems entirely plausible, but it is poo. This one's false. Rats. Uh, So Blaylock describes Kamakura as a bit of a throwaway idea, and uh, and the fan reception to to it was unexpected, and that kind of drove the uh, ongoing use uh, and and particularly making the the toy and so on. Yeah, I still think they could have thrown him away. Josh Blaylock actually likens him to Boba Fett in Star Wars, where where he was, you know, just this character who was in the background of a of a scene, and uh, and sort of grew with uh, the fan response to it. Jay, one for you. Devil's Due included Neo Vipers, as Hasbro insisted that they play a ma- a major part in the book. I'm gonna say and I think that's probably the other way around. Uh, we talked about Hasbro getting some of these issues for reference when they made the first movie, and I think the Neo Vipers were featured in there, and they probably got that idea along with the Nanites and many other things from this series. 
Yeah, I think I think that's probably completely plausible. It, it is false, yes, as it is poo, just as you say. All um, right. That de the Devil's Jew did not have new toys forced on them um, to be used in the book. They would, where they were used, it was generally just to show goodwill and uh, to, to try and um, show Hasbro that they're doing their best to support the, the brand. Okay, next one. Hasbro had some strange rules on what could be included on covers, such as not allowing the guns to be pointed at the reader. This is tough because that was a rule for a while at uh, during the Marvel run. Um, and then it got rescinded, uh, I think, around 88. Um, but by the time Devil's Due was publishing, different people would be in charge. And I'm thinking of Devil's Due covers, and I can't imagine any that have guns pointed out. So I'm going to say true. True. It's true. They were not allowed to point their guns at the reader and also uh, minimal gunfire on the uh, covers as well. So uh, we'll, we can maybe try and see, spot if there's a, a theme there. But um, but yeah, if we've seen guns pointed away from the reader with minimal gunfire, then that will be part of the Hasbro edict. Next up, Devil's Jew wanted to kill Hawk and Cobra Commander, but weren't allowed. Hmm true that is true they did want to kill both of those three characters and weren't allowed and they still weren't allowed even when they were coming to the end of the run so even in the final few issues of the devil's due run they wow. were allowed to kill off those characters uh, and so the characters that were killed off in the run were uh, chosen instead to so show some of that you know impact okay tim this is last one for you Devil's Due published more G.I. Joe issues during their tenure with the license than Marvel did. Okay, so uh, 155 plus oh, 30 is 180 plus Sephora. about 20 for the four-issue miniseries. We're up to about 200. Uh, Devil's Due did, uh, the main series got to, uh, was it 40, 42? Reloaded was like about 20. Uh, there was Master and Apprentice 1 and 2, Battle Files. And then um, America's Elite got up to about... Uh, 36. Six? Yeah. Um, false. Yeah, it's. I think it's a false one, yeah. They, they weren't far off and they had a, a lot of... Uh, they had a much shorter tenure of, uh, in terms of the time. Uh, than Marvel did, so they they put out uh, a more frequent content in the time that they they had, but they didn't get up to the grand total. Yeah, so uh, Devil's Due had yeah forty three in the main series, thirty six in America's relaunch, eighteen on Frontline, and some various other um, tie in books and and miniseries, and so so we're getting up to around about a uh, uh, hundred and eighty as the total, uh, whereas Marvel had. Uh, their 155 main series, 28 special, special missions, various yearbooks, and uh, other spin-offs. Um, so, so they do have that. You know, they do it did put out more, but um, yeah, given given the amount of time they had for it, it the, the the totals aren't too far off. So that's it. That is all of my poo <laughs> and true used up. <laughs> Marks all out of poo. 
<laughs> but next, I think Jay, you wanted to talk some Tories. Jay, 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 Talking G.I. Joe collectibles. It's a favourite figure. Let's pull the trigger. Three and three quarter inch or bigger. J, 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 J. Yeah, one thing I always liked um, when you would do Mark do, Mark Talk Toys is you usually talk about a character that was featured in the, uh, in the issue. Last time we talked about classified Destro and compared that with the 1983 Destro. Um, now, of course, this issue only had two characters, and since one of them doesn't have a classified figure yet, that's Major Blood, that leaves us with Duke. Um, now, Duke was first released as a mail-away figure in 1983, and as a carded figure in 1984, his first appearance in the Marvel comic was number 22, like Chimney Sweepers Come to Dust by Larry Hama and Mike Vosberg, when he and Roadblock uh, took down a Rattler that was preparing to attack the funeral of the team's field commander, or the first commander, General Flagg. Um, now, if you remember in the beginning of the episode, uh, Flagg was killed by Major Blood in issue 19. So there's a nice little tie-in there, really, with uh, with Duke being the one that goes after Blood. Um, I did have some info from his file card, but since I know you're in a hurry, I'm not going to go into too much of that. Um, the big thing was, and I thought it was nice in this issue, they, um, you know, he was fluent in Russian, it was noted, when he was in that party. Uh, Languages is a big specialty of Duke, back from his earliest file card. He says he's fluent uh-huh. in French, German, and English when he enlisted in 67. And then after that, he went to U.S. Army Special Language School, studied Han Chinese and Southeast Asian dialects. So probably by the time we meet the character in you know, 1983, he's proficient in a lot of different languages. Um, now, after his first appearance in issue 22, uh, he was featured pretty, pretty prominently in in the the series but i think probably what leads to the character's biggest popularity is um his use in the cartoon the sunbow cartoon he was in almost every issue probably of the first or every episode of the first series where he was often portrayed as the leader of the team and i think since then he's appeared in every incarnation of uh, you know any joe comic and in cartoons or or toys and you know obviously was the main character in the rise of cobra movie now, according to Yojo.com, there have been over 50 different versions of the action figure. Like I said, the only ones that we're going to look at right now are the original and the classified one. Uh, now, one of the most distinguishing characteristics of Duke's original design was the bandolier that went across his chest. The original 1983 version uh, featured one grenade at the top. The new one doesn't have the grenade. It does have the little blue spot on the top of the strap that I think everybody kind of agrees is some kind of communicator device. Uh, both mm-hmm. versions have, which is a nice little touch, uh, an airborne pin that he wears on his left breast and uh, okay. similarities with the figures. Um, the original Duke had a, a tan button-up shirt. This one does too. Green pants, same thing. This one, like the other classified figures, has uh, the gold accents course the original one didn't have that um there's a couple nice little things the original figure had uh a black a pair of black binoculars on a strap that, that came with him and the new duke has kind of an updated more modern 
I'm not sure if you'd call it binoculars because I think it only has has one. It's like a night vision monocular, maybe. Monocular. And I actually have a pair of mm. one of those myself, and that's kind of a neat little thing. And it snacks. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look exactly like this, but it, it works great for night vision. We Why watch animals in the in the backyard. Said, that's another podcast in itself again. <laughs> but um, yeah, and and that fits on his belt. The original Duke had a backpack that had uh, a parachute on it. Excuse me, and a shovel, presumably to bear to bury the parachute when he you know would go on night insertions. The new backpack also has the shovel in there, so that's a nice touch. The only thing that I really am not real pleased with with the new character is his face just looks really young. You know, if you look at the uh, the original Duke, it said that he enlisted in 1967, which would have put him about 34, probably if you you know you do the math. He would have been born in like 48 or 49. Would have been about 34 when he joined the G.I. Joe team. And the new figure looks like like he's just out of college or maybe just going into college. I understand why they do this. They want the characters to be a little younger. But to me, G.I. Joe is supposed to be the best of the best. And you don't get that right out of college. You get that after you know 10 or 15 years of, of experience in the field. But overall, I think the update is a really nice figure. Um, it's a lot more accurate or, uh, you know, similar to, to the original to make it, uh, you know, older fans are able to appreciate a lot more than some of the ones that we've seen in the years between then and now. I've, I've actually seen, a, a, you might have seen this as well, a, a, a customizer who sort of repainted his classified Duke to, to look like the original, and I think he sort of, used some sculpey as well to make a a, um, a six inch version of his original gun as well uh, his, that, that rifle um and um it did look very satisfying actually just seeing seeing those colors replicated exactly on on this this scale and with the with the new levels of, of detail and um well i can see you know the the desire to to update them and stuff it it you know perhaps would have made for you know a really nice variant or something just to to have just that real, that that real classic version one look to it, and, and colors and, and so on. You mentioned a custom Duke. Um, it's funny when I was a kid, I always thought that his legs, the action figure's legs, were kind of skinny. And um, then another figure I had, Chuckles, with the Hawaiian shirt, I just thought was stupid. But his lower half, I thought looked really nice. So I took him apart and switched his legs and waist with Duke, so that Duke had a bit more of a bulkier sturdier look and that was my personal figure mm, interesting tim i can't remember if we talked about this before but you, how, how where do you stand on the uh on the classified line and 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 so on have you um does it appeal on any level to to you yeah i have the first four or five i'm not a big toy collector these days because my attention goes to artwork and pre-production but that's not just hasbro that's also you know, animation and comics but i follow the news when classified figures get announced and then sell out very quickly to the disappointment of fans and mm -hmm. and i know a little bit of the controversies you know there are too many repaints or the the weapons are actually nerf guns and maybe some people don't like that um in my mind, quintessentially, G.I. Joe is a smaller size action figure, and six inches is 
it's just sort of too big for me. But if if Hasbro is going to play the game, right, then G.I. Joe is going to compete with or stand on the same level as Star Wars Black and Transformers Red and Marvel Legends. So so go for it. Uh, and it is exciting to see that much more detail and, and that many more uh, accessories. And it's nice to see a Joe figure in a, in a package that has such heft and takes up so much space on the shelf. It commands attention. But then the flip side is we can't have vehicles. And G.I. Joe is a vehicle-based line, right? We call it an action figure line. But if you look at that first year, that's a vehicle-based toy line. And um, you know, I'd, I'd be happier if G.I. Joe were strong enough, like Star Wars, to have a line for grown-ups and a line for kids. But then, I guess going by this Star Wars analogy, maybe the G.I. Joe line for, for younger buyers, maybe they wouldn't bend at the elbows or knees, and I'm not ready to give that up. Mm, no, we tried that back in, uh, actually, did, did I think, well, the, the limited sort of articulation version of G.I. Joe that came out in 2000 and one 2002 was it that that um that was actually featured in battle battle lines that with the with the stats frostbite design yeah not very satisfying i think it's sort of a, quite you know aligned to that was it power of the force version of the, the the star wars where they just were all uh very squared off and very over muscled and and yeah not not really resonating with the the people who, who like those original ones you mentioned the packaging of the classified line, Tim. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that's probably one big complaint I have about the line is they're in boxes. They've got plenty of room, but there's no file card. I mean, part of the reason why the line was so successful and why we all um, grew such an attachment to the characters mm. was the file card. You know, you were in the store. You could look at the package, look at the figure, flip it over, see what they're about. If you don't know who these characters are, it's just a guy in a box. I mean, you don't know anything about the character. I think they're really losing out on on not including a file card with the new characters or with the There's new so line. So much of what actually gave them, mm-hmm. you know, say, the character, the personality, um, you could you know take so much away from those file cards. Yeah, it's a shame. But the box art as well, they they are putting some effort into that, and the GI Joe classified Duke. I think featured Franco Francavella. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but but yeah, mixing it up with with each one of these uh, different figures, having a, a an interesting uh, artist, and, and Hasbro not being afraid to have them make take you know their own style and, and make a an individual stamp on on that art. I don't know. I mean, for me, that doesn't work. You know, that was a nice another nice point about the original card art was they all had the nice Hector Greedo artwork. They all look like they were done by the same person they all belonged in the same uh, universe if you put several of these new classified boxes side by side you know some of the some of the figure artwork is um you know a a close-up some is is further back um they're very different styles in some in some cases and i think a, a more uniform look would have been better not that we ever are finding these on the shelf but just, you know, I know a lot of people do display the boxes. I don't. I, I take them all out. Um, but, yeah, I, I would prefer more uniform, uh, you know, style to them all. That's me personally. Having this different artists and having 
file cards is is the opportunity, right? You'd have them draw something a little bit more uniform for the front, and then you'd have yeah. some kind of card, trading card, on the back or in the box. That would be yeah, that'd be a good way to do it. Where it's a it's a it's a pose where they get to do more what they want. We didn't we we haven't spoken about the latest retro line Duke, aka Shouting <laughs> Shoutface Duke. Uh, which I think we can all agree uh, we're not fans of, and uh, move on. Why? Why choose? Why? You know, you're putting out a new toy. This is Duke. This is the uh, one to yeah, get everyone back on the line. Why have him with a shouty face? Not there's so many other good Dukes that they could have used. I don't know why they went with that one. Um, I don't know. Yeah, the retro versus classified line is a is a big issue. I think a lot of collectors are leaning more towards the classified figures now. I know I I am. Um, just because they're they're newer, you know, they're new sculpts, they're uh, they're they're bigger. You get a lot more detail, and it's just neat to see them in in new sizes like this. Um, and then with the retro line that we got with the the most recent wave of Lady J, Duke, and Cobra Commander. The Cobra Commander's nice. Duke has the shouty face, which doesn't work. The Lady J figure I felt like didn't work. Um, now I did get most of the figures. Actually, I got all of them. Uh, from the from the first two or three waves of the of the retro figures, because uh, some of them I didn't have in three and three quarter scale before, but you know once they released those, and I kind of had decided a while ago that I wasn't going to try to get the vehicles. Just it's a it's a matter of real estate. I don't have the room to to display a bunch of vehicles, um, so you know that made leaning towards the classified line easier for me. Um, but it's like, why would you use? a bad design like that for one of your your flagship characters i don't know why and on that bombshell um <laughs> tim have you got some gi joe merchandise to tell us about i do so funky so nice it's gi joe merchandise do you need it sure you do it's gi joe branded fool what shall we make we can decide pick some old crap and put flint's face on the side it's G.I. Joe Merchandise. I'm holding, and I'm flipping by my microphone, the uh, 1983 Marvel Books uh, G.I. Joe Real American Hero, The Trojan Gambit. Uh, this is the size of a coloring book. It has a spine, and the spine just says G.I. Joe. The cover, uh, it's a gorgeous painting by Earl Norum, and uh, it's a couple Joes uh, in that signature, Earl Norum, painterly, brushwork style. This book is a reprint of issues six and seven and three of the monthly G.I. Joe comic, and this was sold at bookstores and Toys R Us. Um and it's, again, it's not published technically by Marvel Comics. It's published by Marvel Books, which is Marvel Comics. And uh, I think uh, at the time, David Anthony Kraft was the editor in charge of Marvel Books. Which I, so I think he's the person who put this together. Um, but I might be wrong on this. He might have been the editor in charge of Marvel Books a little bit later. Um, but um, Marvel Books is this... I don't know enough about it, but uh, and I haven't checked my David Anthony Kraft interview recently, but uh, Marvel Books is this sort of brief uh, run of 
publishing like coloring books and comics reprints in this slightly larger like coloring book size, right? The trim is taller and wider than a comic uh, for placement in bookstores. Um, but this one is just three issues of the G.I. Joe comic. It's on uh, really nice paper. It's not it's not the Baxter paper of Tales of G.I. Joe, but it's not the uh, newsprint of the then monthly G.I. Joe. What's really fun about this, besides the fact that it's a little bigger and it's got a spine, so it feels fancy, is that all three stories have been recolored. And that's because it was printed at a different size and the original coloring for those issues um, by, I think, Christy Steele. Uh, oh, that's wrong. Uh, the name is Christy Scheel, not Christy Steele. Um, you know, those that those color guides are made for film and then plates at a certain size and you can't just blow them up oh, or maybe you can but it's expensive uh, maybe it's uh, only possible or faster cheaper to just recolor them so these three issues are uh, recolored by stan goldberg uh, the the other reason to recolor all right here's here's the better reason to recolor it because um, this is going to be on better paper so you don't want to use the the screens for newsprint where you're gonna sort of be able to see the dots. You wanna have a, a, a fancier um, printing process for this nicer paper, for this nicer market. Um, but what's fun is that, you know, this is not uh, like a case where with the occasional, you know, Marvel or Dark Horse reprint of a superhero book or a Conan book, it's not modern coloring, redoing old coloring. It's four color, right, F-O-U-R, four color from 1983, being recolored as four color in 1983. And so I don't know if Goldberg had the original issues next to him and was making slightly different choices, or if he just had all the character guides, whatever that may have been uh, next to him. Uh, but there are just lots of um, subtle and interesting differences. Like for example, mm -hmm. uh, the very first page of the book is the very first page of uh, issue six. And the original issue six um, has a plane taking off and the background is this bright orange. And then the, uh, this, the version that I'm holding, uh, the, the background is red and orange and light orange and yellow. And then the actual, uh, credits and the indicia from the original printing have been removed. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I wonder out there, are there, are there, you know, I got into GI Joe comics because of the toys. I wonder if there are people who got into the comics because they found one of these books at a bookstore or a toy store. Mm. And and as well as the the recoloring, I think there's some some re-editing and moving around of of panels as as well. There's some quite interesting examples of that on over on uh, YoJo where they've uh, replaced images with with others or, or, or merged certain pages and panels to, together to to compose the the look of the page. In a slightly different way, alongside that that recoloring. You know, one of the things that I loved that Marvel put out was the um, GI Joe Digest. Did you guys get those? No, I don't think I've ever actually ever seen one in person, even. But do you know what I'm talking about? Um, is it it's is it is it a smaller reprint? Yeah, and it reprinted like three issues at a time. It's technically called GI Joe Comics Magazine colloquially everyone calls it gi joe digest oh, okay. because it's it's digest size like the mm -hmm. rg digests at the cash register yeah the, those were great because like like i mentioned in a previous podcast my first episode or my first issue was number 
um, 18. And very shortly after that came out is when they started putting those out. And by getting those, I was able to then, at the newsstand, catch up on all the stuff that I had missed before, uh, before number 18 came out. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, these were each had three issues at a time. The front cover would be one of the three covers. Mm-hmm. The back cover would be another. Some of the issues have the third cover then in black and white as the, I think, inside back cover. Issue one of G.I. Joe Digest has just issues one and two because issue one was double-sized. I never saw these at the time, but when I got into G.I. Joe comics, around when issue 90 was published, uh, I did see these uh, you know, f- available for sale through mail order and at comic book stores as sort of a um, back issue. They're really satisfying because the art yeah. is the way that comics were, you know, the sort of style of comics then both drawing, inking and coloring is that you can shrink it that much and it still reads. It's a little hard, yeah. um, but you they see what happened detailed like like these ones. Yeah. You see what happens, um, you know, Marvel uh, and uh, Dreamwave experimented in the 90s and 2000s uh, with publishing modern comics at a smaller digest size to sort of like aim them at kids, maybe sell them at stores that weren't comic book stores. And the more detailed the art, the, the more busy the color, particularly if it's meant to be printed on glossy paper and then the digest is not glossy paper. I'm thinking of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Dreamwave, John Nay Ryber, J. Lee, uh, Transformers G.I. Joe crossover that's set during World War II, which is bonkers, right? Imagine reading that at digest size on, f- on flat paper, not glossy paper. It yeah. is fascinating. <laughs> a good fascinating or a bad fascinating <laughs> uh, difficult it's it's a really okay. interesting artifact but it's it's a little yeah, hard to read. i liked it I, I thought the the series looked really nice but it seemed um i don't like i said i don't have it in front of me but it, um, from what i remember it seemed like most of the pages were pretty dark so i could imagine shrinking it down to the digest size would would be a, a challenging read maybe and all of the dialogue but balloons as well, as well, sort of, and all the captions and things, all of those shrinking as well, and you're just gonna, it's gonna strain your eyes to to read them. If, you know. I'm gonna ask right now if there are any listeners or viewers um, on 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 our various platforms. If you got into GI Joe comics uh, in the '80s because of GI Joe Digest, these three-in-one, very compact reprints. Let us know, because I'm interested to know who has a relationship with these and, you know, did did it work? Did they get people in? You know, I've tried to track those down. I was going to um, give them to somebody as a, as a gift, but they're hard to find. Um, one of the things about the getting back to the originally the, the Tro- Trojan Gambit, one of the interesting curios- curiosities in that is I think it's probably the title page. So I'm guessing page, you know, the page after the, the cover or possibly the back cover, I'm not too sure because I don't have it in front of me, but um, is is that they've taken the issue uh, four cover, uh, which originally had Hawk wearing a beret, and they've uh, redone that with um, him without the beret and just showing his original um, blonde crew cut, which sort of fixes uh, a niggle that I had with that original cover. Uh, it's always great when that kind of, uh, that kind of, inaccuracy or small mistake can be fixed in a later edition yeah without 
without making a big deal of it. You sort of you sort of nod and go, yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. So uh, let's move on to everyone's favorite segment. By everyone, I mean mine. It's innuendo. <laughs> Attention, at this moment you are now listening to a Talking innuendo If you are offended by words like Sucking Flesh wound Willy Pete Balls Crystal balls Hypno shield Whatever Take the tape out now This is not a pop album And by the way Suck my Grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag So as you know, if you're in the right frame of mind, my frame of mind, then G.I. Joe names can sound pretty dirty. So can I get through a list of 10 dirty sounding G.I. Joe names without making my co-hosts titter or indeed guffaw? So um, Jay and Tim, keep your mics on. I'll spot if you've muted there and uh, let's begin. Deep Six. Listen and fun tripwire. The Toss and Cross. <laughs> All right, you you got me. <laughs> AKA the bridge layer. <laughs> you oh, read dear. a list of those on the last episode when it was just the two of you, and I, I think I was probably gone with the first one. I <laughs> I have to admit I, I have the same uh, probably twelve year old sense of humor that you don't you do, Mark. So the, well, the, the thank is... thank you for thinking my humor is so advanced. Um, <laughs> So I think that's us all out of time. And hopefully uh, by the time I've edited this down, we can get down to a sensible time. Um, you won't. So with, with that done, you can uh, join us next time on G.I. Joe. Um, we're all up to date on our reading of IDW's A Real American Hero. So we're going to have a rest week, but we will be there. Uh, we've got some interesting ideas for a special episode. So keep watching the skies for that. And then in a fortnight's time, we will be back for the next arc, which I believe is issues six to nine. I think it's a four-parter, uh, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, that's four parts. And you can find us in all of the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk has got all of those usual places. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, and YouTube. And uh, where can people find you, Jay? Just... Look for me on Facebook, either Jay Cordray or Break Room Sketches. And Tim? The best place to find me is a realamericanbook.com. But I'm also on Facebook and Instagram with that tag. Very good. When all's said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. Ooh-ha. Laters. Yes, get us out of this rabbit hole, Mark. I'm complaining about coloring in comics, and it'll be hours before I stop. Did we lose Mark? Tim, are you there? Did we lose me?